0: I was one of the first in the UK single men to be a foster carer and after 30 years a lot of things haven't changed the private children's homes are making fortunes for hedge funds Mm. we've got councils that have no money and yet we've got hedge funds that are making fortunes the UASC is uh, what, how they're usually described, just, just kids that basically come without any parents. But they've usually had very traumatic lives. So f- for a couple of years, you settle them down, then it hits 18. And at 18, they have to apply to stay, for leave to remain. Um, but when they go back, uh, they're the lowest of the low. In a country where the low are pretty low, um, they, they get no um, housing, they get no benefits no support um they have no rights and they they have like a black mark against them and he was on a lorry with a number of others and he's he said he's, at the time he was just 16 he said he was the only one that didn't have a knife they don't know they're in, a, they're in a foreign country they don't speak the language fluently they are just going to say what they think they should say and those seven or eight minutes determine their future mm-hmm basically 11, 12 years old. He had to take some money home at night or he would get a beating.
1: Mm.
0: They come to the UK. A lot of them will go into drugs houses, cannabis farms. Um, a friend of mine went into one a few months ago in South Wales. And there was 40 or 50 kids in there. That's all I do, I suppose, in a way. That's all I've ever done. You have to rebuild a youngster. That's what foster carers do. We we rebuild lives. You know, Agree. That's just, what
1: we want count just... counter the darkness, <laughs> we need some stories like this.
0: But it, it's like the whole system is not workable. It's, it's a system designed to fail.
1: Hello, everybody. Today we have John Stokes on the podcast. And it is not just John's story. It is the story of Samet as well. On this channel, if you've gone on our about page, you've seen our mission is to end the war on drugs and to take all of those resources to investigate and incarcerate predators, which we think is somewhat lacking in the world right now. And John, hopefully, during this interview, is going to reinforce that message by sharing his personal experience and the story of Samet who was abused in Albania At 11 years old Samet was begging on the streets and then by 15 his dad took him to Brussels To cash in on him and apparently Brussels is a hub for human trafficking if you haven't seen our work with Andrew Wallace who sets up safe houses across the country for victims of modern-day slavery and trafficking. I urge you to watch that true crime podcast. And, John, what got you down this avenue whereby you were helping kids? Um, I suppose over over 30 years ago. started off running, I had a news agency, um started working a football team. Oh, let me just stop wait, one second. John is an author, a foster carer, and a mentor. they are his official titles. So, yeah, I started a couple of boys' football teams, went into youth work,
0: and youth work to children's homes and children's homes to fostering. So I've had um, sort of vast experience working with different youngsters in different situations, sometimes in groups, sometimes, um, in recent years, much more one-to-one basis.
1: Um, does this UASC... Which stands for Unaccompanied Asylum Seeking Children, from arrival until eighteen, is that some legal term that defines well, these kids? Yeah,
0: yeah. The UASC is uh, the how they're usually described. Just just kids that basically come without any parents. So they arrive in the UK, and it's happening now a lot. It's in the news at the moment in Kent in particular, um, because obviously most come into Kent, and Kent is basically just jammed up youngsters at the moment because the government's decided in their wisdom not to spread them out around the country because that would cost them more money they don't want to fund the council so all these kids are jammed up in kent kent can't take any more so kent are taking the government to court over it but these kids come in and they have to find places for them what gets the feeling of what the government's actually trying to do is to by reducing the amount of places they can put them in detention and get them out the country if they can but they're not really supposed to get youngsters out the country So that's their problem, is they have to accept youngsters and they end up coming to, usually into foster care, maybe to children's homes, but obviously that's not an ideal environment for any youngster. So they they tend to come to foster carers like myself. Um, And up until 18, 18 is is a big, big point, because up up until 18, we try and give them stability, some care, some love, um, and some normality, because... they can kind of have they come from all over so they sort of come from middle east they come from africa uh, places like albania where samit comes from but they've usually had very traumatic lives so f- for a couple of years you settle them down then it hits 18 and at 18 they have to apply to stay for leave to remain and in particular for me with the couple that i've had in the last few years both albanians for albanians i think it's 0.5% get accepted of albanians and the rest get rejected. So what they've done in that time is they've kind of become anglicized because these youngsters have, in, certainly in Albania, um, because of circumstances in other countries, maybe because of war, but in Albania more because there's specific reasons in Albania why kids are often kept away from school. There's blood feuds and all sorts of traditional things that means that kids aren't safe even within their own family. They have to stay in their own house. So when they come here, they're like sponges that want to learn anything they can. And um, Ali was the first, the older one I've got. He he came to me just under six years ago. And he hadn't been, I suppose, outside the house hardly for 80 months before he, ke- before he came to the UK. Um, and that's not unusual for these kids. So they come here, they love to learn, and they thrive. And then they get to 18. And that's the, that's the stopping point. What happens when they get sent back to Albania? Um, I, Funny enough, I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with Albania. And they confirmed what I already knew, which is that if you go back to Albania, you're seen as a failure. Now, that doesn't mean that the parents necessarily send the youngsters. But some do. Or some basically sell the youngsters. Uh, but it's, there's money involved because it's trafficking or in most cases. Um, but when they go back, they're the lowest of the low in a country where the low are pretty low. Um, they, they get no um, housing, they get no benefits, no support, um, they have no rights and they, they have like a black mark against them. Um, the other aspect is is that for any youngster going back, they can be re-trafficked because the traffickers pick them up again. And what the courts say, or what I say the courts, what the, um, the Home Office says is these youngsters can go, go back and be safe. Now, in Albania, it's a small country. Your surname tells people where you're from, exactly where you're from, into a fairly small area. You can be traced. So the home office say, we're putting them 100 miles away. You go into any office, I'm told, in Albania and pass the money over to local social services even. Pass the money over and say, where does this person live? Straight away, you'll get it. You can buy any any information you want. There's no safety. There's a lot of evidence of youngsters being re-trafficked. They come to the UK, a lot of them will go into drugs houses, cannabis farms, um, a friend of mine went into one a few months ago in South Wales, and there was 40 or 50 kids in there. Now, they'd been held hostage in there for the term of the grows, so for at least one grow, so 12 weeks or more, and then they're released one by one and pop up in social services. And they don't all go that through that way, but a lot of them do. And then they come to people like myself. So, this is where, where the kind of start. So then they get a chance. Then they get a chance of life.
1: How did Samet come into your life?
0: Um, it was just a case. I because I already had Ali with me, who was Albanian. He he requested if there was a chance of living with a, another Albanian that he would like to. So that put and I happened to have a vacancy at that time. So should we
1: start with Ali then? How Ali came yeah. into life? Yeah.
0: Well, Ali, um, that was nearly six years ago. And he literally got off the back of a lorry, he, in his case, off the back of a lorry and into social services the next day and into me the next day. Um, within three weeks, I got him into college. He didn't know what he wanted to do. He just wanted to learn. So the first one that he saw he thought might be good would be uh, hospitality. So he started at Bristol College. Within three months, he was the top student. Wow. <laughs> and They, they, they just sort of the, the tutor just said, he's phenomenal. He's just taken to it. He's got no, he had no cooking experience apart from looking, occasionally looking after himself in Albania, but in very limited means. You know, his job was looking, basically looking after the family cow. He was industrious. Yeah. And he'd come home from college in Bristol and just say, I don't understand English people, John. He said, why did students sit in class and tap their phones. <laughs> he said, What's all that about? He said, I want to learn. <laughs> and at the end of the first year, he he volunteered for a little um one of these days where you go and work with a chef who was doing a presentation. And the guy was a Michelin star chef. And when he came home, I said, I go. He said, Oh, it went great. He said he wants me to work for him. I said, Don't be silly. I said, This you know, I said, You're talking to Michelin Star Chef. I said, He'd probably be nice to you, Ali. You know, he said, there, I'll get a phone. So he gets a phone, phones a guy, and the guy says, When do you want to come down? <laughs> so by his, by his second year, he finished his first year as, outsta- as the outstanding student. The second year, he went part way through it and decided to go down to Torquay during the week to work for the Mission Star Chef. And he spent about a year down there having a fantastic education. And the chef just said to me, He's got, he understands taste, John. He can pick out. He said that's one of the keys to being a chef is to really pick out what's in something, and he's got a natural talent. That that natural talent, when when we went to court because this was pre eighteen, he got to eighteen, he was with the chef. Um, we went to court. The chef uh, came along. We had a um, a reference from Michel Roux about his possibility because the and the judge, I think we were fortunate. The judge had was a foodie. And that was as soon as I realised that, because you know there was obviously a connection yeah. with the chef. And basically, the, the the judge just said, "What would this boy be?" And it, it, she got a bit of a vague answer. She said, "No, what I'm asking," she said, "Is this boy capable of following your other chefs into Mr. Star?" And he said, "Oh, absolutely. I've no doubt he could if he, if that's the, the route he chooses." And he he stayed with the Mr. Star chef. and Briefly, he came back to Bristol, started working a restaurant um as a chef and within a year was head chef. Um with another year was a director of the company. <laughs> Bloody hell. And it's by twenty one,
1: Agree. You know. That's what we want. And he's just to the, count of the <laughs> darkness. We need some stories <laughs> like
0: this. He's <laughs> just twenty-two and now he wants his own restaurant. And I've said whatever it takes, we'll find a way to get it. I don't know how we're gonna get it yet, yeah. but you know, the one thing I've always said is if you have a dream, you've got to go for it. Oh, that's fantastic. So so that's where he's at. So so that was my my kind of and i had to learn on my feet i didn't know where albania was even though i'm fairly well educated i didn't really know where it was i didn't know anything about it so i had to learn about the culture and it was fascinating for me as a foster carer who'd looked after english youngsters through 20 odd years you know best part of 30 years to suddenly have this this new one in the mix somebody who wanted to learn because with all due respect to the english youngsters they've been through the system when they get to me i'm the end of the line Everybody else has been tried usually, and um, it, it's you know that it's just one of those things that they come to me and it, whatever I can do I can do. But it it was car thieves, it was you know it was burglars, it was you know it was it was the socially unacceptable ones. And then all of a sudden I get migrants, and Ali was the first, and it was just such a, in a lot of ways refreshing change. Nothing wrong with working with the others. I love the energy from, especially the criminal, you know, the criminally kind of inclined youngsters. Because uh, what I would do is try and look for what their talent was. So, for instance, with a car thief, he could start any car. He At 15, he was stealing cars and taking them from Bristol to East Anglia for, for people to take overseas, re, redo them and bring them back.
1: So, he was an engineer. And that was yeah. at
0: 15. That was at 15 he was doing that. And he was stealing about 10 cars a day You know, from different places. Um, but I just saw that he had a talent. And now he can do anything on a computer. He's a mechanic. He can fix anything. So he's turned his,
1: wow, you know. Channeling that energy yeah. into positive activity, isn't it? That uh, talent yeah. and energy.
0: And I think, I mean, you, you've yourself got a lot of the, the experience of, you know, of being in the sort of the, the criminal fraternity, if you like. And you know, there's a lot of genius in there.
1: Oh, there's so much um, talent in prison that's just wasted because it's, it's not been cultivated. Yeah. Okay. What was Ali's life like before he ended up here and what was his route to get here Well, his his route was i mean basically
0: he came i say on his own across europe so he got on a ferry um he borrowed some money from a cousin um so he he technically wasn't trafficked but the but he was watched he wasn't i don't think he was ever really alone if you know what i mean i don't think he i don't even think he appreciated kind of what his fellow travelers were you know at 15 he hadn't been outside his village hardly at all you know so it was all a kind of an adventure if you like to an extent um he had again it was northern albania there's a lot of reasons why people leave north albania and like i said with the blood fuse they youngsters at 16 if your grandfather's killed somebody then th- the family hold you responsible and uh, and can take revenge on any male when he reached 16 for generations in eternity it carries on
1: and was that the case with his family
0: he's never said that was the case but he's had family members that have had similar you know i mean he, he had a cousin who said had a machete in the back just before he left um and if you ever if anybody ever looks at blood feuds in albania they'll understand why these kids sit in their houses because the the person who is going to or possibly going to kill the youngster can come to the house and be welcomed into the house by the parents. Cannot kill, but can sit at the table with them. No, and the kid cannot leave the house and be safe. And that's one of the reasons. So it's not the only reason, but it's certainly one of the reasons why a lot of youngsters come from Albania because it, young men get to sixteen, and you know, in some, you know, it, again, you know, that was that was to be the case when he came.
1: Yeah. So was it, did he have an okay relationship with his parents? Well, Ali. Yeah?
0: Um, with his mother, not with his father, and that's often the way because Albania is very patriarchal, very set in the way old ways, which was suppressed during communism, but then post-communism re-emerged. So again, going back to blood feuds and things. And he, I think he was probably close with his mother, but you do what you're told. If your father says something, then the whole family the extended family they all abide by it so if he ostracizes you you're out there is no comeback father said it you're out and that was to a large extent where he came you know and like I said he came more independently but I don't think it was really as independently as he thinks it was Um, and he ended up in the Cali jungle and had to jump a lorry basically to get to the UK and um, that in itself is traumatic just by the fact that um, what kids have to do just to get on lobbies these days, you know, I mean.
1: Just, just let's go back a second then. He ended up in the Calais jungle. Is that like some detention centre? The,
0: Jun- the Calais jungle was going back three or four years, was where all the migrants were heading for to get to the UK. So it was, they were sleeping rough, um, hundreds, I don't know, if it might have gone into thousands there, but that's where they all grouped together.
1: And was that a government?
0: No, no, no. This is just to get to to get to England, they needed to be at Calais to get the short route.
1: So, there's a, so they got was, to Calais. So Calais, they even now,
0: they're clearing out camps regularly. The main camp has been cleared out. But, but in the Calais area, that's where a lot of the migrants come across on the little boats or on the lorries from there. And he waited three weeks in Calais to be able to get on a lorry because everybody was trying to get on the lorry. And, people, you know. and, and what's the method of getting
1: on a lorry? Basically jumping on it. Jumping on top of Ju- it.
0: Well, literally jumping on the back anywhere you can or if it parks up, if, if lorries park outside Cali or even 20 30 miles away, people get underneath them and underneath get inside them. And if, they, if they've got canvas size, it's easier. But they're very good at getting into them. I'm sure there are lorries. Well, we know from what happened you know, a year or two ago, there are lorries which are complicit in it. So with some lorries, they they have to hide in places that the lorry drivers are aware of. Um but in a lot of them, it was just a case of just trying to jump a lorry. And he was on a lorry with a number of others. And he's, he said, he's, at the time he was just 16, he said he was the only one that didn't have a knife.
1: That didn't have a knife. Yeah. So, what whereabouts on the lorry was he for his journey? He
0: he was just sort of basically hidden in a yeah back right in the back of the lorry. he said he, t- he said it lorry. was totally black. He couldn't see anything, you know, except he knew there were people there and he caught the odd glimpse, you know, of somebody. But he said it was it was a really scary experience. And then,
1: so are the checkpoints for these lorries.
0: This <sighs> is what you wonder sometimes, you know. I mean. You do you know you do wonder how much is complicit with some drivers and things i'm sure there are a lot of those going on that there are organized operations with them because i can't believe it we know that people get pulled off lorries quite often they get they get on a lorry they get pulled off it but a lot do get you know a lot do get through so um so it but then he ends up in bristol the lorry stops it's in bristol he gets off
1: so when you say the lorry stops and he gets off does he just have to Literally, jump jump yeah, off it and yeah, run, for no, his, run for his uh, life? There
0: was no communication with anybody on. other than glances and, I suppose, in a way, threats almost, you know, because yeah. with, with the knives, just showing somebody a knife is enough to say, you know, yeah. as you know. And um, so you just head for anywhere. So he slept tonight in a park and then somebody helped him to social services. They call me.
1: So he was asleep in a park and someone took him to social services. Somebody
0: just showed him the way to social services. Yeah. Um, they went in there. They, they called They called the fostering team. The fostering team said, you've got a space.
1: Could he speak English?
0: He could, uh, which he'd learned from TV, mostly. <laughs> some at school, but he hadn't been to school for some time. Yeah. So he'd learned off TV. Hmm. Um, and it's quite funny because now he has a very strong bristol accent <laughs> <laughs> and even within the first year the chef that took him on thought he was bristolian wow he picked it up it, it was that sponge thing of, yeah. of just um you know and he, he he his college was in a particular part of bristol that's known for its strong accent as well mm-hmm. you know so but yeah he um i mean he literally there was a boy no no clothes had what well, he stood on just a striped t-shirt jeans trainers that was it that's all he all he turned up with, you know, and to, to think that a few months later he's he's showing people these cooking tips. I mean, I, I lived better in those first few months once he started learning to cook. Because yeah. for cooking wise, you know, <laughs> he, he recants the story that when the first day he comes to me, somebody asked him, said, What did you have to eat? And he said, John Cook quiche. <laughs> and he said, What was that like? He said, oh. <laughs> He said, I knew I had to be a chef. <laughs>
1: So when they go to the social services then um, The social services prioritise them Because they're sleeping rough
0: Just because they're migrants Because they're undocumented So social services have their own team Immigration team I I presume it's the same in each city Mm -hmm. Um, And then that puts them into the system So they have an interview They contact the home office And the home office sets up a series of interviews Over the coming months Which they have to attend to explain how they got there, um, how they got to where they are, their history, as much as they can. Now, the, a lot of those, just to put you in the picture, a lot of those happening in Kent. It didn't with him, but a lot of them happened in Kent, where they first appear. And I spoke to another foster carer who's, who was a police officer for the Home Office, who did these interviews, and he said they were told, their instructions were, you've got seven or eight minutes to interview each youngster. In that time, you must find out this, this, and this. Every bit of information they received is then gospel. Now, bear in mind, when the kids got on the lorry or whatever they got on, people have said to them, whatever you do, you better say this. You better say that. So they don't know. They're in a a foreign country. They don't speak the language fluently. They are just going to say what they think they should say. And those seven or eight minutes determine their future. Mm. And that's that's a pretty scary thing because you're not really telling
1: the most would not be telling the full truth what kind of things are they told to say
0: um they're they're obviously told not to mention that you know any trafficking any you know anybody any connection with anybody so so it has to be that you know you've basically made your own way you know um and and just not to say certain things that would kind of highlight anything that that's helped get them there
1: you know (laughs) If they do say they're trafficked, does that give them further protection under the modern day slavery and trafficking law?
0: Yeah, because what um it you know, we get onto Summit, but with Summit he was mm. officially trafficked. Now it's an advantage to be trafficked, but it doesn't guarantee you asylum. And far from it. Mm. It just puts you into a it just it's just another offshoot. It's you know, it's supposedly helpful. Um it shows you're a victim. It's helpful in that way, it shows you're a victim. But a home office doesn't really take it with any
1: mm. um seriousness let's go to the beginning then of samet's story whereabouts in albania did he grow up and what was his childhood like
0: he grew up in a, a capital Tirana. um so at 11 years old um his family uh, his father you know he had a couple of sisters um his father liked to drink and liked to gamble and they weren't uh, they were were a poor family obviously and what they um what Father didn't want to work, father father, got debts because of gambling. So he needed money. The only You can't earn money from girls, really, in Albania. The, the only way you can earn money from girls is by having them trafficked. And that's often Turkey, Germany, whatever. For boys, you go out in the street and you beg, you steal, you whatever. And that was Samet's life. So it, basically, 11, 12 years old. He had to take some money home at night or he would get a beating
1: mm.
0: and that continued for several years until obviously the money didn't do enough or perhaps he didn't get enough or but that was how he survived there was no sort of life there you know and then um we at, at a point father took him to belgium and you know he ran away from father in belgium and found his way to the uk in you know not dissimilar to the way ali did by getting, you know, getting on the back of a lorry. All of these things have helped for, most of the youngsters don't talk about the experiences because I don't press the youngsters that come to me about the journey because for me, it brings the trauma back to them. And in Summit's case, he's been diagnosed with severe PTSD. Mm. So you come through a life of difficulty, you then go through a traumatic journey where, S- some of the kids die on that journey. I from what I understand, a lot disappear. Um Brussels and other places are capitals for pedophiles, pedophiles. Um we know what happens in this world that these these people can be quite powerful. And Calais Jungle itself was a honeypot, basically. Mm. Where the price for many youngsters to get, male or female, to get on a lobby was sex. And that was you know, again, I don't talk to youngsters I look after about that aspect because I, they, if, I've always told them, if you need to talk to me about something, you, you do that. But I've worked with so many abused youngsters over the years. I've learned that sometimes stirring these things up, you have to rebuild a youngster. That's what foster carers do. We, we rebuild lives. We don't rebuild. A, it's like we build a house. We don't, re, we, we don't build a whole house we just put a foundation in maybe a bit of a structure Mm. and they go and do the rest. Um, but we help them rebuild lives. And, and that's, you know, that's all I do. I suppose in a way that's all I've ever done is just help them find a a sense of leaving the trauma behind. And I know there's a, a feeling amongst a lot of people in social work that we have to help them deal with the trauma, but I think we make them stronger. We make them stronger and they, they can deal, or they can find the places to deal with the trauma. If they really want to speak to it, it's not a problem. But most youngsters don't want to talk about it. I've worked with youngsters in England that have been sexually abused that wouldn't want to talk about it 10, 20 years mm-hmm. later. And yet expect a migrant to come into the UK and in that eight minutes, tell them their life story. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just not workable. But it, it's like the whole system is not workable. It's, it's a system designed to fail.
1: So Samit gets on the truck and lands in the UK. And what was his he, he, next move? He
0: then got put into a children's home for a few months.
1: Was he sleeping rough or anything in a park? or not
0: in, not in the UK. No, he was picked up quickly, um, put into social services in Bristol. Um, yeah, I think he came from another part of the country. But but at that point, people were taken from different parts of the country. I mean, there still are to an extent, but not massively. Um and he, he went into a children's home, which I've worked in children's homes. And they, however good you make them, they can be quite intimidating. There's, there, you know, there's always, you know, a top dog. There's always, you know, and he was, you know, he was given a bike. He was beaten, had the bike robbed. Mm-hmm. It was, so they were keen to get him into foster care. And that's usually the case. And and it's I certainly wouldn't criticize children's homes because they do a great job. But, but it's better for a, a young person to be with a foster carer. Or with foster carers. So he came to me, Ali was already there, which made it a lot easier. Um, meant he had somebody who could speak his own language, because Summit's English wasn't nearly so good.
1: Yeah.
0: Um and we got Summit into school a year, a year in school, which was a lot of it was about learning a bit more English. Um the second year was carpentry and he suddenly excelled. <laughs> and I, again he he's topped. he was top student within within a few months. <laughs> Hmm. I, and he didn't tell me because he was living. It, it, it's strange when he was living in Ali's shadow, and he sort of thought, "I can't. I'm not going to match him." So uh, it was only when the tutor, you know, approached me one day when I was doing a little TV thing, and he, he said, Do "You know how bo- how this boy is?" He said that he walks over and sees what everybody else is doing and helps them.
1: Wow! It's like even when I went to America, I saw that the immigrants worked a lot harder than the local people. Local people kind of took everything for granted. Yeah. But the immigrants have had like hardships and they come in and they're very industrious and very disciplined and they rise, you see them rise up.
0: And what, what I said about the care system, the English youngsters have been through the system. And again, I'm not criticizing the youngsters because in that system, you have to survive. And to su- survive the system, you have to work the system. So you work your social worker for your clothing grant, you work your foster carer for your pocket money and for your money to go. So it's all about working the system. Um, and we don't really... and. The education system doesn't suit them because many of them don't fit into standard education. So, um, whereas the migrants come and they just really want to learn.
1: So, what happened when Samit hit eighteen and he was had a decision had to be so, made whether to send him back?
0: So he had his trafficking decision, which is a positive, which means he was trafficked. Um, we went to court as we had done with Ali. With Ali, we'd had such backup. We knew that with Samit, the backup wasn't so great but we still had a very very strong case um we get to court and unfortunately the judge has gone sick and another one gets called in the whole thing happened another judge comes in it happens very quickly i was expecting a day in court and we had minutes and i was actually thinking at the time this is good they've just take they've, they've believed our story well not our story but they have believed they believed what we've said about how important it is for him to stay here but we got a negative decision from the court mm. and in hindsight i thought yeah i can imagine probably called off the golf course wasn't very happy being there that day
1: it's like the ju- what the judge had his for his breakfast that kind of thing it,
0: yeah, yeah yeah i don't know but you you kind of you know the 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 contrast with the, the, the judge with ali and you mm. know so it was and it was a negative decision and and then we went back on appeal and again negative um, and that's when I got into sort of the petition. So I decided to start a petition on change, um, it, it, within the, I think in the first week, I was hoping that maybe we could get to a thousand people. And in the first week we were heading for a thousand people. Um, but I think two, two and a half weeks in, we were up to about eight or 9,000. Wow. And we went out for lunch, um, down to Taunton for family lunch and we were on eight or 9,000 Wow. And we had lunch. and when we come at at lunch, I I put the thing on because you you get to, it's like a game, you check the counter to see, and it said (laughs) (laughs) 17,000, and and then as I was looking, it went to 18 and 19, (laughs) and by the time we got to Bristol, it was 30,000, and it just carried on, and it it was unbelievable. Now, one of the things that affected it was what we said about those migrants dying in the lorry, because that Mm. happened just at the time i started the petition so it got it got it put the focus
1: was, on they, was they the asian people yes Yes. yeah
0: so it put the focus on your particularly young people coming mm-hmm. into the country so i think that boosted help raise people's awareness you know ali went on victoria derbyshire and did it you know a bit and kind of about his experience you know mm-hmm. um which was quite scary in itself because he'd become this confident young man and he went on the TV program and he dissolved. He, he kind of, he was, he was fine in one way, but I could see he was just melted. He was, he was, just, the, the trauma was
1: coming back. It's, it's too much, um, to go through what he's gone through and then just be thrust onto TV. Yeah. Yeah. I it's, mean, he, it's he a, volunteered. A, it's, a, it's a big, and, it's a big in adjustment. Hindsight, in the hindsight, I thought, yeah. oh, hang
0: on, I shouldn't have let him do that. Yeah.
1: yeah. You, you
0: make, sometimes you make a decision and, I had to make that decision all the way by the media. Mm. You know, um, it's like talking to people like yourself. I have Mm. to make a decision. You know, I've said to a lot of people, you get in bed by the media, you can't pick and choose. Is your petition ongoing? It is. We're up to
1: 422,000. What? (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, you're going to have a few more (laughs) because we're going to put the link to that in the description box below the video and and your website or whatever other links you've got will be below the video for of as the police support John's work so is his decision hanging in the balance so we went through about a year
0: of court um during that court, because of the petition we were approached by a barrister a top mm. barrister who said you know I can work for you at a very Slight, co- you know, a slight cost compared with what the cost would normally be, yeah. because we had a solicitor who literally was. Um, we had a first solicitor that was, that was. We left after the first court thing, went to another one. Who I got a feeling saw the petition, and we had a fundraiser, and that was beginning to clock up. And I was thinking, yeah, you're you're watching. You know, your fees are matching the um, money going in, sort of thing, quite well. It was to pay for the fees, but it, you got the feeling that <laughs> this was. And a barrister came forward, and she's one of the top in the country brilliant and she i mean in one case she went after 18 years not in not the same as summit but an immigration yeah. so she's not one that lets go easily mm. so we got this amazing out and that came through the petition that was just she wrote in the petition if you want some help uh, you know um so we went through to the court of appeal or to apply to the court of appeal which had taken quite a time by that time yeah. best part of a year uh, but we got refused leave for the Court of Appeal. We did get an earlier stage. We got, um, you could only, when you put a claim in initially, you can only reply, you can only argue on a technicality. Mm. You can't put a new case forward. You can only say the judge was wrong because this is illegal what the judge did. That's very thin line. You know, do, there's not much you can argue, but you have to follow that through. So we got through to the Court of Appeal, didn't get there. Um, and then a few months ago, we had to put a fresh claim in and the fresh claim can only go in when you've exhausted the other rules, but then you can add in the evidence. So what we can add in is because of the funding we got through the GoFundMe campaign, it means we were able to get some experts. So we've we've managed to get a top psychiatrist. We've got a a country expert and a country expert is somebody who can explain what life is really like in Albania for Mm. a youngster going back, which means that when we come to court next, we have some heavyweights in our corner. Wow. It doesn't guarantee anything, but we do have some heavyweights in our corner. Fantastic. And that could be in the next couple of months.
1: How much did the GoFundMe raise?
0: So far, we're up to, I think it's about 26,000. Brilliant. And, you know, it's, it's not a cheap going through. We've gone through quite a bit just up to this stage. But it, what it's done is we've had probably an extra 10,000 in the last couple of months since the last refusal. Yeah. So that's paying our way ahead. So when I started it, I kind of would not close it, but just say, please don't put any more in. We've got enough for this court case. And then we get to the next stage and I'd say, oh, sorry. (laughs) but So this time there's a bit more in there. So at least Mm -hmm. if we don't succeed, there is, you know, there's a little bit left, but it's been an amazing response. It really is. How the 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 people that, uh, you know, and it's not just from England. I've got people... You know one one night i sat reading about 400 l- letters that come through you know <laughs> emails that come through long letters of people's support from ecuador from new zealand oh. from you know from all australia all over the world yeah. you know i get i get people contacting you know there's a late particular le- lady that works in the jungle in ecuador mm. with with tribes and that's teaching english to try and she writes to me every couple of weeks and says, how's Sam doing? And she sends little presents for, you know, like oh. little, you know, and it's amazing. Yeah, But it, it's given, it's shown what how many good people are in this world. And that's what we've forgotten, I think, this last couple of years. It
1: restores your faith in humanity, it does. doesn't it? It does. So <clears throat> if the decision goes against you, sometimes they don't want to go back to the country. So the only option then is to go underground. Is that correct? And that's where most of them go. Right. Uh, I've spoken What's to What's life some... like going
0: underground? Well, you're basically going back. You're either going back to the traffickers or you're going to gangs. Mm. Um, some people might hide you, but it's not safe because the Home Office will have addresses of likely places. So yeah. um, what youngsters tend to do now is is to try and source the network before. Some run before even decisions are made now.
1: Mm. Um, and we're talking, you know. I mean, so it's 0.05% earlier or something. All, of Albanians, yeah. Of yeah. Albanians get yeah. accepted. And... Um, so it's ni- the 99 point I, something percent I, I, likely. To... I now
0: volunteer work with a London charity, Sprayser, who uh, work with Albanians.
1: Yeah. So there's What's a, that charity called? Sprayser. Sprayser.
0: S-H-P-R-E-S-A. And a wonderful charity that help a lot of Albanian families in the UK. Um, and particularly they've got youth groups and things in London. They're based. Yeah. Although I'm in Bristol, I, I sort of help help out with them. but But they've got, evidence as i've spoke to other people of a lot of albanian youngsters that are now underground i've had some come to my house you know um and speak speak with me and yeah. their life is not great because they they can't do anything they can't be legal mm-hmm. they will never pay tax um they they will never have a proper job they won't be able to get married they won't be able to have a driving license all the the driving license things Seeing Ali get his driving license things like that were amazing um but these youngsters don't get that chance and when i say mm-hmm. don't pay tax people might think oh that's great not pay tax." no it's not because w- the way i look upon it is when these youngsters come in we help educate them like they want to be educated we get them ready for work in life where they can be paying taxes as ali is he never moans about the tax he pays he said oh paid a lot of taxes but john i'm lucky i can you know <laughs> like um uh, but the government is denying the, the country the opportunity to, you know, they are tra- they, we've trained them. Mm-hmm. They're a resource. Why invest in these youngsters in training and education? You know, in Samit's case, he is not allowed to work. Now, he went through the first year, year of carpentry as a top student, but has now dropped out simply because his friends have moved on because they can get jobs. Mm-hmm. They can work. He can't even do work experience. So, <sighs> his heart at this moment, his heart is gone.
1: It's a shame, isn't it? I mean,
0: it was it was interesting. I watched one of your podcasts. You talked about the the having a, facing a, a prison sentence in a long time, you know, a very long time. That's a bit of what it's like. Yeah, you know, when I saw it, I thought that's a bit of how Sam it must feel because there is no future.
1: It's the uncertainty isn't it. There's, there's no you, can't you know plan anything. when you
0: say, where should we go next holiday. Yeah. what you're going to do when, you, when you've done this. And there's Ali that's, that's doing it and showing the benefits of the investment we made. I mean, this is what I don't understand. We've got a conservative government, who I thought understand about commercial things. Why would you throw an investment away? Because that's what these kids are. They're investment. And we scrap it. But what we're actually doing is we're giving an educated youngster back to the gangs, which means they have a higher earning potential for them. So as I've said to a few people, it makes me feel like as a foster carer that I'm part of this network where t- youngsters get trafficked in. I do them whatever I do with them and virtually hand them back. And all we're doing is feeding the trafficker. And that's to me what the government is doing is that they are encouraging the traffickers. Their hostile involvement does not harm traffickers. It encourages them. And that's the, that's the simple answer to the hostile environment It is encouraging them because they are thriving.
1: Just like drug laws have caused chaos. You can rely on the government to screw many, <laughs> many things up. So you're calling for an amnesty and an end to the hostile environment.
0: Yeah, yeah, because we should, make, we should give an amnesty. It's happened in other countries. I think Spain did one a few years ago. where you have given am- amnesty to the migrants that are here, in particular, the ones that came as children. Because they've not got anything. Most of them, if if they had something to go back to, they would be willing to go back. They most have nothing to go back to. They've been anglicised. They wouldn't fit back into their own culture necessarily anyway. Um, so an amnesty, all the work that has taken up the time of the Home Office, chasing these youngsters, all these youngsters that have disappeared. You know, nobody actually goes chasing them, but they're always on, they're always on the lookout for them. All that work that goes in, bring it to an end, amnesty for those that are here, and start working with the ones that are coming. It would free the Home Office up, which would make a lot more uh, you know, sense monetary-wise. It would save their resources. They could concentrate on incoming rather than what's already here. Because we're, we're talking about many, many thousands of, of people out there. I hate to think how many, you know, I mean, I've seen figures of a million people being kind of in the UK. I don't know if that's true, but there's, there's a lot of people in the UK that here illegally. And like I said, I think, especially for child migrants, we should just accept that when somebody comes here as a child, they should have the option to stay without going through this. Because the other aspect, and and being, you know, at this time when we're talking, it's refugee week. Um, Speaking with somebody yesterday about these youngsters, I explained Samit's situation at the moment, his deteriorating mental health, because Mm -hmm. it is deteriorating, and it was echoed by remarks of other youngsters they're dealing with it in similar situations, because Every day, they are waiting for a knock on the door. They're expecting the Home Office to turn up and put them in the detention center. Those same detention centers that the High Court has just said are not fit for purpose, but they're keen to get them in. And, and going back to the, the Kent thing, this is why I think they're stopping the youngsters from going around the country because they, they would have to invest in the local authorities. The local authorities are underfunded. All it needs is some funding. And I think given amnesty... Why not put a tax on the multinationals or the billionaires, a social tax, to, to help, you know, because so many problems can be sorted with that. Yeah. But they never seem to consider it. It's all about, te- you know, um, social services I feel for because they've got a reduced pot and they're always struggling to to cope with what they've got.
1: they always trying to strip it down or privatise it off and just squeeze every last penny out of it from what I've seen. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so fostering and mentoring, a career without a pathway to qualification or recognition?
0: It's something because I've been a single foster. I was one of the first in the UK single men to be a foster carer. And after 30 years, a lot of things haven't changed. You still kind of feel like you're a bit out on a limb. There's better support than there was, but it's no career because if you're a social worker, you've gone to university and you write, you can write you through team manager, service manager, blah, blah, blah. As a foster carer, you can only be a foster carer. There is no you know and what is a massive waste for me is the fact that foster carers like myself have got all this experience we are often asked for our opinions or to go and lecture somebody for free for you know for a bit of petrol money or whatever but we're never really or very rarely are we actually treated like professionals mm. even with all 30 years experience i'm not regarded as a professional they might say so verbally but there's nothing to back it up there's you know so it's frustrating because you don't get that kind of chance and just at the moment with the care review you know the independent care review that's just come out the first results of it as saying about the system is completely flawed because what's happened is that the private children's homes are making fortunes for hedge funds Mm. we've got councils that have no money and yet we've got hedge funds that are making fortunes
1: so is it like the prison system where each kid is tens of thousands a year of taxpayers' money to the home, and kids are just turned into commodities. A,
0: a, a, a private children's home will be minimized, I would think now, probably a four or five thousand pounds a week per child. What I put in a lot of the private children's homes four or five and, thousand and it, pounds a often, week? It often exceeds that. I that's re-
1: 20,000 a month.
0: 15 years ago,
1: I that had, is yeah, 240,000 a year, yeah, and they're only getting. 50,000, 60,000 off a, a foster, prisoner. A foster care, including expenses. Four, or five times a prisoner? Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. What a racket.
0: It's, it's a lot of money. We're not How do they get away care. with that? Because the system has been changed. I ran my own children's homes <laughs> with, a, with another guy going back about 20 years. Yeah. And we did well. But we were even at that time, we were at the low end and we were charging between 1,000 and 1,500 a week, when a foster care at that time was getting about 200 a week. And that's, uh, we were like a not for profit, but they're all not for profit. Let's face it, we all get to know about these not for profit. You know, it, it's all right if, if you're actually ethical to some extent, but a lot of not for profits really are about paying huge salaries to people. Um, and this is the frustrating part that 4,000 4, plus a I'm week. I'm my brain just it's... can't
1: comprehend that. So 4,500 a week, that's a lot of five star uh, food and. Um... All, of, all kinds, isn't and it? And but the, I, I imagine that the conditions are probably not four uh, or five thousand a week no, conditions. And a lot a month, and it's going in the pockets of the the people who own the home. They, they, I, I worked for one company
0: briefly, and didn't really know the structure of it, but it turns out it was a hedge fund and they just- So a
1: hedge fund owned the company?
0: Basically, the hedge fund- And they're
1: friends of the government, so they get so, the contract. So they
0: invest, what they do, they invest in, say, children's homes. Yeah. So they might invest in 10 projects. Mm. They only need two of those projects to work. It, it doesn't all, it, not necessarily all children's homes, but they invest in a, a group of projects. As long as a couple of them work, they get their money back and start making. Mm. But they have a limit. So in the case of what, the one I worked for, I think they had a half million limit over two years. When that was exhausted, even though we were on the verge of becoming successful, they cut it. Because that was the, that was their policy. Cut it off. Now, we've spent we're not spending another penny. Um, it's purely commercial terms.
1: And I've purely greed?
0: And you know, there's always been this thing about you can earn a lot more as a foster carer working for the for for the, for the um private sector. Yeah. You can earn a bit more, but it's not it's not the foster carers that are taking the money. The difference is minimal these days, because uh, the agencies squeeze the foster carers as well. Because they, you know, they make sh- they don't give you extra for this or that. You know, you have to use your own money for petrol for it, going to schools. Maybe I was spending three hours a day transport. The youngster wasn't getting anything for that. You know. But yes, that's and my argument's been that we have to. This care review has to look at the whole system and say. Is this the
1: independent care yeah, review?
0: Yeah. Yeah whether the, whether it's taken note of there's a lot of people in in the um foster care and in the child care that understand what the problem is it's too much money is going out that end and at the same time local authorities are not investing because they've got these deals with the private companies because they're big companies so it's easier they can deal you know they can have a you know well, should i say round a golf or whatever do you know what i mean the management can work their deals out the companies that i had like I had a few years back, have been squeezed out because they were small. They couldn't do, fit into a tendering process. A lot of them have tendering process. only the, That only benefits the big guys. So it's been squeezed. It's been coming for years. The privatization of foster care has been happening bit by bit. So different aspects of it are kind of gradually sold off. And it's moving that way unless somebody puts a block on it. says, so let's invest this money instead. Um, that money that's spent at the high end would be better invested at the start. So preventing youngsters coming into care, putting more into that, that's the first job. And when they come into the care to give them a better experience and more investment in that because there's so little investment. I mean, you really are scraping the barrel now for, you know.
1: Just like the drug war, they're profiting from the problem instead of addressing the root causes of it. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, so they keep keep the status quo going because that's how they maximize their profits.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: So the music connection that has helped your work from Tricky to Marcus and the SBEP.
0: Yes, right. Well, when I first started, I started in a youth club in Norwest in Bristol. Um, And it was a group of youngsters. It was the late 70s, uh, sorry, late 80s. Um, And it was hip hop was the thing. So a lot of graffiti a lot of rap music and i grew up of rock
1: music Bristol's known for graffiti isn't
0: it it is now it wasn't then it was just starting then um, the guy in Massive Attack Delge, he was one of the first ones there but it was all these youngsters 15, 16 were full of hip hop it was a, come across from America we put on a couple of events and in my club it was a very much a working class area where I worked and young Tricky was one of the you know he was basically putting heads through windows when I got there at 15 <laughs> um and i wouldn't say i mentored him because i didn't i mentored a lot of youngsters there i mean it was nice a few years later when he i read an article he, he said i was his mentor but it, oh. it, it was an exaggeration by a long way it, oh. all it was was that i was a youth worker who was prepared to do something put on an event for kids we put we put on a uk in this heartland of bristol where it really nobody comes in from outside the estate. <laughs> we put on the uh Chad Jackson, who was world mixing champion, and I, and they you know and the uh, Cutmaster Swift, who at the time was a top DJ, they came in. They had the cars robbed, of course, you know, while they were there. <laughs> but for the youngsters there, it was like the like the blue touch paper.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and there was a group called Fresh Four and had a hit called Wishing on a Star. They kept they were at the youth club um there's a, a very well-known DJ Bungie there was there was a whole burst of youngsters mm. came out and a, a colleague of mine another youth worker was at a neighbouring club just a, a little way away in Bristol, and he concentrated on graffiti yeah. and the whole Bristol graffiti scene came out he's now the godfather of graffiti <laughs> I mean and Banksy obviously came through so that whole kind of
1: wow
0: a massive surge so so, so that was where where I started in 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 music so Going on for Tricky, I worked with a, a rap group who were working with youngsters. Um, and music kind of followed through, you know, all the, I think working with youngsters, even if you don't really know too much, I'm not, I can't say I know a lot about rap music. Mm. But I I understand if a youngster likes it, that's a communication tool. And music's been a wonderful communication tool for yo- for working with youngsters. And the last few years, I, I've been, um, I looked after a lad on respite. And took him to a when he was about 13 took him to an event which changed which he says changed his life because wow. he he's got asperger's and he's a, a bit off the beam sometimes in in a lot of respects like a lot of people with asperger's are mm. and i just took him to this event and he was totally knocked out and <laughs> he came back he was only for a few days on respite every six weeks and he came back and he had his lyrics he, he added like a couple of pages of lyrics and i said yeah go take this pad and next time he comes six weeks and it and he came back with several pads so i gave him a box file and the next time he came back with box files overflowing with lyrics <laughs> and he kept on for me all through his cares the care system he kept on for me to work with him like a fish you know and a couple of years well three years ago i said he said would you do an old make an album with me i said i'm not a musician i can't <laughs> and he said you can he said you're my dr dre <laughs> 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 and uh, I found it quite amusing, but I said, okay, we will do it because he's got, like I said, he's got Asperger's. He's got, he's so able to talk about it. Mm. And it, it's been for me, even though we haven't got to the album complete, we've got an EP, we're going to re- release an EP hopefully in a few months, which is him rapping about being an Aspie. Um, you know, so, so that, that whole, that whole thing, you know, it, he, just has this immense talent I think you know what but what I've said to him is you might not ever make it be prepared the chances of making it are very slight but if you can it might lead to something else I said that's what's happened with me music has led music has led to other things you know and um because I work with musicians you know it's um it's people those things so yeah we're working on this Aspie EP and the plan now is that me and him will go out and do some lectures <laughs> on the care system yeah. from the two angles: the, yeah. the, the Aspie, the Aspie, and the Elder. On the yeah. um, so, so that's that's <laughs> my next step is to, is to go out and do you know whether, whether uh, it's social work students or, or whoever. Yeah, but we've I've got thirty years of experience in the care system, and he's got over ten. Mm. So we know a lot about the good and the bad of the care system, Can and imagine. I think f- coming from two different angles will be quite quite something so so yeah i'm going to be raising awareness of that and you know that's that's a big part of it and then the, the other music thing is the i'm a soldier thing which getting back to Sammet was a friend of mine did a, a record i'm a soldier and it, at the same time Sammet's campaign was starting and i said that's how i look upon Sammet. he's a soldier every day is a fight every single day is a fight and that's what these youngsters have to go through for us so we're going to kind of in a way kind of market and i'm a soldier campaign to to get through to some of these youngsters because i've been asked about making a documentary with the, the youngsters we talked about that have gone underground oh, yeah. and that's something i would really like to do yeah. so that's that's another aspect of what i'm going to look at at the moment is is doing a doc because i think the story needs to be told i mean that's why i was keen to come on here because i think mm. the story needs to be told to these youngsters that exist in our cities we are walking past them every day yeah and they are completely anonymous to us.
1: We had a rapper on called Mr. Capone out of Los Angeles, and he got out of the gang lifestyle through music. And I worked with the Curse Trust out of London who helped prisoners rehabilitate through art, including music. Yeah. So it's so many it's, different it's, types of intelligence, isn't there, and in interests of people. It doesn't necessarily well, have to be academic.
0: And And with Marcus, you know, with his rap, you know, even in the last couple of weeks he mm. started designing some t-shirts mm. you know one with a uh, the word freak it sounds mad but it's freak on it because he actually can laugh at himself he said i'm the freak you know <laughs> I, i'm the guy that's but but he's actually got good designs mm. and i said even if you don't make it out wrap you might be able to make it with your designs or you know always look beyond what you're doing use what you've got as a vehicle to the next the next bit you get to, you know? Yeah.
1: So, so yeah, it's, it's good. And then you channeled your energy into a book.
0: Yeah. Well, that was <laughs> for years, ever, ever since I started in children's homes, I used to write the daily log after a hard night with the kids kind of, and they used to, people used to be in hysterics over it and whatever. And they said, you got right. but that went on for many years. I never wrote. Mm. And a good friend of mine who was going to write a whole wonderful social worker died a few years ago. And she was going to write a whole load of books. When she died, I thought, I need to write my book and it happened to be at the time I started work with Marcus and then a year in Samit's case starts so it's been done like a blog and my advice to anybody writing a book is that when you write your first book whatever you do mm-hmm. don't write it like a diary with with waiting for an ending <laughs> because I'd love my book to be finished but we haven't got a finish, We haven't quite finished the Aspie EP yet, yeah. which was going to be an LP, but now it's an EP, and we haven't got Resort and Summit. We might get that in the next few weeks, and you know, but there's a kind of reluctance um, to do that. But I've now started a second book with Marcus, mm. uh, w- with looking at As, you know, being an Aspie basically. So that's that's a day. but. But yeah, it's it probably wasn't the best book to start. I should have just gone, but it started as a book about a, an old man working with a, a rapper. Mm. And I realized, as I was writing it, um because in the last few years, I lost my mother and a good friend and mm-hmm. things like that, I realized writing it, you start um it started to become about me, and I'm very reluctant to push me. And in the end i, I gave in, I thought, no, this is my this is my story. and um it's it's still Marcus's story. It's still Sammet's story, but it's it's kind of our story, you know, it's our story, and it it's actually become. With, with all the petition and things as well. Again, go back to that. One of the reasons I think it was successful is because I put our story in it. Mm. I didn't just put what's happening to Samit. I put the whole family with Dave that, that's here today as part of it. And people wanted something human. Yeah. Especially, as you know, over the last three or four years where there's been so much negativity on social media and mm-hmm. things like that. And I think that's, that's the key to everything is giving people something. Even in, the, in a bad situation, to make the best of it and bring something out of it because however bad the situation you can turn it you can find some good in there
1: definitely and your book's going to be called aspie and the elder
0: well that's that's book two that's book two yeah i don't want to call my first one my biography but i it's i've had so many titles already for it you know i i haven't even found a publisher yet but that's the next that's the next job is to just finish off the chapter and and basically because I'm on to the last chapter but I'm literally it might be the last two chapters if, mm. depending on what happens with Sammet, yeah. and whatever but so I'm cracking on with the Aspie and the Elder just because I want to get a book, book written basically that doesn't depend on an ending
1: so just a recap then so you're helping Ali get his restaurant that's the goal with Ali Sammet is in limbo while he's waiting for a decision Samit
0: for me all I want to see for Summit is the chance to have a life yeah. there's all these great plans with the other boys with mm. Samet He doesn't want any great plan he just wants to like to have a life yeah and that will be i think if we win in court that would be the best Mm -hmm. you know writing a book great you know somebody might buy it somebody loads might buy it who knows but that's all you know that's nothing compared with a life
1: yeah and if people want to become a foster carer or a mentor Is that difficult like do you have to like is
0: it's not and you know one of the things i've been asked a lot since i've been out doing this is Mm. is is people have said how do i become a foster carer talk to get in touch with your local authority don't get in touch with a private agency yeah i'm not saying they're they're all bad because they're not but private agencies work in a different way and starting out as a carer it is best to go through your local authority they're always looking for foster carers You don't have to have any particular training. You just have to have a will to want to help. And like I said, I've had some pretty horrendous things happen over the years. Mm. They've never put me off. The the whole thing with Samir, I mean, you know, somebody said to me last week, they said, are you ever going to take another migrant? Because this whole court process is so draining, not just financially, but um, emotionally, massively draining. And I said, well, you know, the chances are probably got one coming next week Mm. because you don't just get off you you don't just stop you know i I should have retired perhaps but it's just if you've got a passion for doing something you carry
1: on so say someone's walking through the park and they see a a kid asleep on a a sleeping rough what should that person do
0: well i think if they can engage, but mm. but even engaging is difficult these days because approaching kid. I mean, it depends on the age approaching mm. kids. I mean, especially being I know I'm kind of know being a, a male single male, it's gone are the days where you could just go up and s- see a kid lost and think I'll help you, because
1: you'll get charged. For I I, trafficking I knew, or know somebody yeah, that yeah. did
0: that a few months ago, and had a please jump on him. Yeah, I can imagine. And he was just trying to yeah. try to direct the kid to you know, yeah. but but that that's the difficulty so i think you know try and engage if you can try and get a, see if there's somebody that can help yeah. i mean social services are always a good point you know to go to because mm-hmm. it is that it is their job to help people but but sometimes it's just a case of the, the kid perhaps maybe a good youth worker you know um and that's what i was said about mentors because youth workers also make good mentors and that's a good way, if you're not sure about being a foster carer, maybe start thinking about being a mentor, you know, in youth work or getting a taste for that kind of work and see if you have, you know, an aptitude. But but certainly f- with migrants, there's a massive demand for looking after young migrants and it's not the usual sort of foster carer skills.
1: Yeah.
0: So with the sprays that I mentioned in London, I'm looking to be talking to the London Albanian community soon. Mm. Um and saying there's a well, there's a, two reasons. One is to find more English carers for Albanian youngsters, mm-hmm. but, but more importantly to find Albanians that live in the UK who could care for Albanian youngsters mm. and could earn a living out of it. Because that's another
1: aspect, you know. Where are you speaking in London?
0: Uh, I don't know as yet. I mean Sprays were based in East London. Um so still the
1: date.
0: I no, they haven't set a date yet. They've they've told me that they're setting it up at the moment, but um, I would suggest if people follow my Twitter, that's probably a way to keep. That's where I tend to keep people up to date.
1: Would you let James come along and film that? Perhaps? Absolutely,
0: absolutely, yeah.
1: That's something you think, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. Because it's something.
0: Um, I think people from uh, you know ethnic communities, mm. um, migrant communities, are loath to go to social services voluntarily. Yeah. to say I want to be a foster carer because they're thinking well the first thing they can do is come and say are you doing your thing right or... Mm-hmm. and I think it, there needs to be bridge building uh, but there's a lot of youngsters out there that need caring it wouldn't just be a case of Albanians looking after Albanians any more than it's me looking after English or Albanians but I think there are a lot of youngsters out there so so yeah I'm I'm looking forward to do that and hopefully being able to do a bit of campaigning for the the ones that have gone underground
1: it's absolutely fantastic that we're getting people in such as yourself and andrew wallace who are making real world changes and how can the people watching this video help you i think just be more aware look at it, look at
0: what's going on in, in the world um there was a great success last week it was a, uh, i'm not sure how you pronounce it, but a, a semi brown the young the autistic youngster who the home mm-hmm. office had backed down on um they had a big protest in london last week um basically he was an autistic Young man of twenty two, been here since four years old, and was being sent back to Jamaica, which he hadn't mm. been two foot since four years old. They they also got four hundred twenty thousand, as I saw the other day, on their campaign to save him. Now, this this lad had written a letter to his mum saying, "What bus do I get home from Jamaica?"
1: Oh, how sad is that! You just think, what
0: is our home office
1: doing? Mm completely uncurvy
0: so i would say for people to get involved to to actually i mean obviously if you can sign a petition you know surely Mm -hmm. at some point home office are going to say we've had enough of this man if nothing else we've had enough of this man because he's beginning to annoy us
1: so we're going to have all your links below the video then so we've got your petition you go from me you're gonna, you've got a, your Twitter. Twitter is, yeah, work, yeah. is that the best place for people to yes. contact yeah, you Twitter's and see what good, you're doing? Twitter's a
0: good place for people to contact me. So. Do you have a
1: website or anything?
0: I don't at the moment, no. no. Okay. Partly because I've done everything more or less single-handed from yeah. the start. And setting up a website is, <laughs> mm-hmm. is not one of my um, best. It, a website, I think, needs um, regular maintenance and things. And I personally wouldn't just have to i've got friends that help but not necessarily website friends if you know what i mean yeah so, yeah. so the website will come but at the moment i think twitter is a good a, as good as means of any, of getting you know getting a hold of me and
1: yeah well, i'm sure people watching this are going to commend you in the comments i certainly do and
0: i'm not just i'm known as music works john on the twitter so that's as what
1: music music works john music because, works m- music john.
0: works because my um my music is it G O H N on that one there, there's no h on that That's uh, a long story i won't go into so you're
1: at music works john is your handle yeah yeah gotcha
0: uh, because music works is something i've run as uh workshops for young, young kids which is where mark has started yeah so it, yeah. it's kind of gone full full circle in that way but uh yeah. but yeah that's where they can get a hold of me um and help support and just see what i'm doing
1: yeah you know so please let us know in the comments, what you thought about this video. It seems that so many government resources are misallocated, whether it's from the war on drugs or it's from it's, you know, just putting money in their own pockets for contracts with care homes and hedge funds. And my mind is still blown four to 5,000 a week. There's a lot more than that. <laughs> I thought they were profiting off the prison population. Excessively. They're profiting off kids at the rate of four to five thousand pounds a week. Now, that is absolutely obscene because that money could be used to address the root causes of these problems. So, we're we just living in a world where our politicians, our rep- representatives who have our tax money decide just to put it in their own pockets and maintain the status quo. It's absolutely sickening to hear. The reality, I've learned so much from you, John, today. Huge thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Good luck, you know, with, with the future of your work. And all of John's links will be in the description box below the video. Huge thank you to John James for coming out to film this here today. And um, I'll give you a, a elbow box oh, tonight well, yeah. to keep it within the guidelines, <laughs> keep, keep it legal. And huge thank you also to the new subs subscription logo is in the bottom corner of the screen. Cheers. Thanks for watching.